Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey there, everybody. I'm Thomas Frank, and welcome back to the College Info Geek Podcast. This show exists to help you as a student become better at studying, more efficient at learning anything, getting the jobs you want, and learning how to manage your money. And today on the show, I have a guest. His name is Shane Parrish, and he is the founder of a blog called Farnham Street, which you can find at FarnhamStreetBlog.com. And honestly, I think Farnham Street is one of the smartest sites on the internet. So Shane actually reads a ridiculous, just a ridiculous amount of books. And he pulls out the most salient points out of all these books. And he's a huge fan of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And these guys had just the amazing mental models that allowed them to learn very quickly and take action and obviously succeed immensely in life. So if you want to learn how to become a better reader, a better learner, uh, and a better applier, is that a word? <laughs> applier of the things you can pull out of books. And this episode is for you. And I really hope you enjoy the interview that's coming up in just a few minutes. Before that, if you have any questions about college, about any part of the process, learning better, getting jobs, managing your money, whatever it may be, you can email me at thomas at collegeinfogeek.com. And I will get those questions answered for you in some capacity. Also, if you want to subscribe to the show, which helps bump it up the charts in iTunes and get more students to be able to see it and also delivers the new episodes to you every Monday at 6 a.m. You can go to cigpodcast.com, find the show notes for this episode, scroll down to Shane Parrish's episode, and you will find them, episode 48, and you'll also find links to anything we mention, also ways you can connect with Shane, which is awesome. So, uh, also, I, I guess one little personal note that I wanted to mention, you may have noticed the last episode of this podcast was a special one. It was actually an audio narration of a blog post I did on budgeting. And I, I thought, you know, Mondays I do the interviews with the awesome guests and it's very consistent. And I like it, but I wanted to sort of throw something extra in there. So the idea to do the auto narration was fun. And uh, I'm just wondering, like, did you listen to it? If you did, did you like it? Would you like me to do more audio narrations of blog posts that uh, sort of lend themselves to the audio format so if so you can tweet me at tom frankly over on twitter or send me an email let me know what you think do you want this kind of content is it worth it for me to put time into narrating my blog posts and adding them to the podcast feed because if it is it is fun so i do like and enjoy doing it and if you find it useful then i could do it anyway that is all i have to say for the intro so let's get into this episode with shane All right, Shane. Hey, man. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I'm super stoked to be talking to you. I love your blog so much. And I think the main reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is that, you know, I run this blog for students. Uh, one of my main focuses this semester is talking about study strategies. And a lot of students have been like, how do I read textbooks? How do I pull information out of that? And one of the biggest things that I learned as a student is I learn better from a textbook if I have like outside information to pull in right. and like all this web of interconnected information. And you write a ton about that. So I wanted to talk to you, get your ideas on building this web of information. But the first thing I'm just curious, like uh, your blog's name doesn't really 
talk much about what you write about. So what's what's in the Farnham Street name? Well, so originally, uh, just to go back a little bit, uh, Farnham Street started while I was doing my MBA. And uh, it was originally just a zip code. So it was, a you know, um, for the URL. And it was a zip code of Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, it was for me to kind of collect things online and put things together for myself. And then people started reading it. So I figured, oh, well, I should change the name. So I okay. chose Farnham Street because that's the street in Omaha, Nebraska, where Berkshire Hathaway has their headquarters. So oh, okay. it's kind of an homage to Buffett and Charlie Munger and the people who have influenced my thinking a lot. Yeah, and you write about those two a lot, both on the blog and the outside writing you do for other sites. I've seen a lot of uh, articles about Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett's philosophies and things like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think they're uh, as popular as they are. I still think they're underappreciated in their simplicity. Yeah, yeah. I really like um, like specifically Munger's mental models and things like that. And I think that you get a lot from those two. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, that totally changed the way that I think about problems and it changed the way that I think about life. Mm-hmm. So were you able to apply a lot of that to your MBA? Uh, well, it was my MBA that caused me to actually change that. So we were, uh, I mean, the full story is kind of we were doing a case, got up and presented something. You know, our, our group differed from the rest of the class in terms of the advice we were recommending. And the teacher was, you know, uh, the professor, sorry, was kind of like, oh, you didn't read the textbook. You know, the answer I wanted to hear was X. And it's like, well, you know, it's really easy to say that. But when you start looking <laughs> into it and you start incorporating psychology and organizational change and base rates and kind of thinking about the problem in multiple dimensions, it's really hard to get to the conclusion she was drawing without, you know, making great leaps. And uh, so what we did was we thought about it, incorporated a lot of different things into the answer we came up with. Um, and then it kind of got reinforced that that wasn't the way to look at things in school because that's really hard to mark now. If you're a professor, you got to kind of like evaluate that and what level of thinking went into it. Are they right? Are they wrong? Versus, oh, you know, they paraphrased, uh, you know, we're going to become the low cost operator. Therefore, they, they read the textbook. They did the assigned reading. That's really easy to mark. Um, yeah. So it was through that process and actually somebody that was on my team that got me kind of thinking about things in multiple dimensions. And that led me to kind of Charlie Munger and, you know, the whole world opened up from that point. Interesting. So that reminds me of a concept I learned about um, probably last year. It was called like guessing the teacher's password. Oh, okay. And uh, I think the gist of it was like, you know, a lot of a lot of students will just tell the teacher what they think they want to hear. So the example given was uh, students come into a science classroom and there's a bar of metal next to a heater. And the teacher's like, okay, so here's a weird problem. The side closest to the heater is cooler than the side farther away from the heater. Why do you think that is? And everyone's just thinking linearly in terms of, you know, the science class. Oh, I've learned about convection. I learned about physical sciences. Uh, it must be some weird property of the metal. And they're not thinking outside the box. In reality, the teachers just turned the bar around right before right. the students had gotten awesome. into class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're kind of like that when we approach problems, right? Like some of the, the people that got the best grades that I knew of in my MBA were you know, less equipped on the outside of an academic world um, than they were inside the academic world. So really yeah. good at regurgitating what the teacher wanted to hear, really bad at applying that to real life situations. Mm-hmm. So one of, I have not done an MBA. I've only done my undergrad, but one of the books I did read because I want to expand my education was the personal MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you read it. Hoffman, yeah. yeah. Fantastic book. I don't know if it's a full MBA in a book, but it's certainly a great introduction to business. 
But I think one of the things that he might have mentioned in the book's introduction is that a lot of MBA programs are focused on case studies and analysis and not so much the application of those principles and the innovation that actually is required for success. Well, case studies are fascinating when you think about them because we're, we're teaching people that, you know, you get a packet of information and all the information you need will be there. And then you're to make decisions on that. So when you manifest that in organizations now, when I do consulting, people get this little packet of information. They make a decision based on what's in that packet, but they're not saying what information is missing that I need to make this decision. And they're not kind of evaluating it. They're, they're very what they were brought up to do, right? Not seek outside information. It's all neatly packaged. So people within organizations kind of manipulate that and they, oh, you know, I left off my data because it didn't conform to the idea I wanted, but I mm. put the package up. You know, the person who's making the decision, if it is a person and not a committee, kind of reads through that and they're like, oh, well, based on this information. And they draw the right conclusions based on the information that they're given, but it's the wrong conclusions because they're either missing information or not seeking outside information. Right, right. I think that goes back to the idea of like uh, your hypothesis is actually the strength of your hypothesis is the evidence that makes it false mm. rather than the evidence that makes it true. So you have to look right. at those cases that shoot it down. And we never have that filter, right? As we're making a decision, we never say, well, you know, what would be, what would cause this to be wrong? And we never kind of think about, you know, maybe I'm not right. And what can I avoid? And how do I invert the problem? And all of these other kind of decision-making strategies that work in real life, but are really messy when you get into them in school. So. Yeah. And you wrote a post about this recently. I think it was like, uh, the the information required to have an opinion or something yeah, like that? Yeah, So I love that. That's Charlie Munger pure right there. And so his, his philosophy is, you know, I shouldn't have an opinion on anything unless I can state the opposite argument better than somebody else can. Uh, hmm. And I think that that is just a great heuristic for how we should think about things when you're in meetings and when you're um, doing that. You should be able to argue with yourself better than other people can argue with you. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's an ideal in our information overloaded world where people don't have time and in the workplace. I mean, one thing that I notice is people don't even, you go to these decision meetings and, you know, you were late getting to work because you dropped off the kids and you didn't read the 20 page brief. You read the executive summary, but everybody else in the room read the executive summary too. So nobody's going to call you out on it because you call them out on it. Mm-hmm. And so you end up making these very superficial kind of decisions and you're not actually doing the work you need to make an opinion where I think, you know, a better approach is to kind of simplify, uh, make fewer decisions, but make better decisions about what you do care about. Yeah. And that really results in just better learning. And I don't know, like I have been writing blog posts sometimes and I'll be doing research and eventually uh, I get to a point in the research where I'm like, you know, I don't actually believe my original (laughs) idea anymore. I've kind of uh, gone to the other side because I've learned enough. And I think just like turning that into a habit is really, really useful for, for making your mental model of the world uh, more accurate. Yeah. Well, I mean, killing some of your, your best loved ideas is, uh, you know, incredibly valuable. We're always thinking about what we can add, but we're rarely thinking about what we can take away. And I think that, you know, in essence, that's just as important, if not more important. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing that sticks out, the one idea that sticks out to me, because I've been, uh, writing about reading textbooks recently, reading your blog, uh, this week and making a video about active reading strategies is speed reading. So all throughout college, you know, all I saw with these posts on speed reading and how amazing it is and how you can get this like spritzer app and just flash the words in front of your eyes. And uh, I was like, well, obviously, that's the best way to read. 
And the reading I've been doing for this active reading post and everything like that is just like, no, speed reading is not actually going to help you learn and apply and be able to recall information very well. Um, you're just, you're just exposing yourself to words. So, um, I guess I've sort of changed my opinion on that. So what is your opinion on speed reading? Cause you do read three to five books a week, I think you said. Yeah. So I read yeah. a ton, like over the course of a year, I think I average probably about 160 books. Wow. <laughs> but, but with that said, I mean, I don't speed read. I'm not, I, it doesn't work for me personally. And I mm-hmm. find the people that do it, um, it's not about what they're learning. It's about getting through a stack of material, right? So it's not yeah. about what I got out of that material. It's always like, oh, well, I just read 500 pages in like two days. And it's like, well, what did you learn? It's like, well, I'm a really fast reader, right? Yeah, that's all you can well, say. So Look how big my Goodreads is. <laughs> right. So at work and in the context of work and our information overloaded thing, well, you can then go to a meeting and say, I read everything. But it doesn't mean you understood it. It doesn't mean that you connected it to something else. And I think the real value is not in how much you read. It's in learning when to slow down, uh, when an idea is important, learning how to connect that idea, learning how to take notes while you're reading in the marginalia, learning how to go back and kind of reread and learning what to reread. And it's just really about, you know, reading it. I'm no faster than anybody else at reading. I'm probably, you know, a little bit slower, to be honest. Um, I just make a point of, you know, reading is important to me. It's something that I want to do. It's something I enjoy. And I learn a lot from it. And I've been trying to be more active in what I learned from it and trying to get more away from books that I've already read or am reading. And that's more valuable to me than just picking up another book and saying, oh, I read another book. I used to keep a list of what I was reading on the website. And I was actually sending the wrong message to people mm. because I was like, here's what I read last month. And there you know, maybe 12, 15 books on there. And then people, you know, everybody's like, oh, you must speed read. You must speed read. And it's like, no, I don't speed read at all. I mean, I just I skim a lot, like a lot of the pop psych books. You know, mm. it's the same story. It's just, you know, they're, they're giving you another example of overconfidence bias or something. You can kind of just flip through those pretty quickly. But it's learning when to pay attention and when to slow down and when to skim, I think, is way more valuable skill than speed reading. Because speed reading, you're just like, how do I get through this page as fast as I can? Whereas when you're more active reading, you're kind of like, well, you know, I kind of understand this already. Um, it's not going to help me. I can skip a couple pages or skim them just to make sure I'm not missing anything. And then it's slowing down. Oh, wow, this is a really good point. I hadn't connected that before. They worded something in a way that I hadn't thought of. You know, the phraseology here is really good. Or maybe I need to translate what they're saying as part of their argument into the broader context of my knowledge and the other authors I've read on similar topics. Yeah, definitely. And I like what you said about knowing what to skim, what to, you know, speed read a little bit, what to really dive into. Yeah. Um, that was a topic I covered really recently about textbooks. You know, you just got to kind of gauge your classes, gauge how you're going to be assessed, then figure out wh- like how much attention to pay to certain sections of your readings right. uh, based on that knowledge. So do you use, there's a technique, I think Cal Newport wrote about it, uh, called the pseudo skimming method where, you skim really quickly, but when you find a paragraph that you can see is very information dense, then you'll like really dig into that one and read it a couple times. Is that what you do with your books? No, I mean, that's a really interesting idea. So um, I don't do anything that I could easily um, you know, spew out on a podcast because I think it's mm. different for each book and the type of book okay. and why I'm reading it and the context of knowledge I bring to the problem and all of that. Right. So if I'm reading about a subject for the first time, I'm going to go through that book you know, word for word. Whereas if I'm reading mm. something that I feel like I have a firm base of understanding in the, in the general concepts and the simple ideas, 
I can probably go through that a little quicker. Then you're looking for different things, right? Like a different take on the argument, a weakness in the argument. You're looking for you know a bit of information that you haven't had before that you can then use and hang in your head. Yeah. Mm. So is this any different from how you approached your assigned readings when you were in uh, college? Yeah, it's totally different. So, I mean, I didn't come up with this until uh, a little bit after. And um, the assigned readings, I mean, we would sit down. You, you just have so much information. It was almost impossible to read it all. And what happens is you lose the simplicity and you grab the esoteric in those cases, right? Because you want to go to mm-hmm. class and you're going to be called upon to talk about something. And you want to have that concept that is really kind of on the fringe and, you know, maybe the, the most latest academic research, but you, you're not building the foundational knowledge that you need. And what I've kind of discovered, I mean, um, and I don't know if there's any studies into this, but a lot of what we pay attention to learning is the most recent. And so we're always struggling to keep up. And it changes so quickly that we're, we're putting more and more effort, like we're on the treadmill. It's the Red Queen effect, right? It's like an arms race. We spend more and more time to keep up, but we're not actually learning anything. Um, and if you're in a discipline, that makes a lot of sense. Like if you're a doctor, you need to keep up on the latest whatever. But if you're a general practitioner like myself and you just want to acquire knowledge, well, a better way to spend your time is actually acquiring knowledge that doesn't change quickly, which means yeah. that you're, you're going, you're not reading for the esoteric, you're reading for the simple, simple idea. What is the main concept I can take away from this paper? How does that apply within the context of this subject? Does it apply outside of this subject? Does it? And that totally changes how you're reading. Like if I were to go back and redo my MBA now, it'd be really interesting to see how I would read differently and what I would get out of it differently and how I would connect things a lot differently than just trying to worry about the teacher calling on me and asking about this idea that's in like a footnote um, that really has nothing to do with the overall thing, but demonstrates that I've read the paper and I understood, you know, some concept. No, the teachers don't go in there and ask about the, the simple idea and they, and they don't rag on that problem. When in reality, they should. I mean, you should be focusing on the simple idea that doesn't change versus the esoteric one that may change. That's just right. my opinion. So given that you're doing all this very deliberate reading now, do you still find that you got a lot of value out of doing the MBA or would you have done it differently? Um, so I didn't drop it. I realized in first semester that the MBA was um, you know, a bunch of hot air, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kept going. And the reason I kept going is... It was a fallback for me in the sense that uh, it's a signal, right? It's the MBA signals something to people. You put it on your resume. It's just, mm. you know, it, it doesn't, I don't think it means much, but it is that kind of foot in the door. It gives you a leg up if I ever needed it over somebody who doesn't have one. Uh, but what I did do is I took all the time I was spending studying and reapplied it to personal, acquiring personal knowledge. And learning about, so I went back, like I had all this academic journals that I could never get on the outside that, you know, I can't afford like the $40,000 a year subscription or whatever. (laughs) So, I mean, I prioritized, I was like, wow, let's go back and read the original like behavioral economics stuff. Instead of just reading everybody's interpretation of that, let's go back to the source and read the content papers and read all of this. And I found that that was a much better use of my time. And interestingly enough, what I found fascinating about all this was, I would hack out my assignment a couple hours before it was due, and my grades didn't change at all. Mm. Um, so I was spending way less time uh, in in terms of you know the MBA 
and it was getting the same grades and then it was doing all this personal learning and it just kind of like morphed into this really cool experience. Yeah, I would guess that it's a bit of the like back against the wall method where you, you know, work a little harder when you're up against the deadline, but also you're able to pull all that knowledge in to create work that would be better than if you were just reading the textbook. Yeah, maybe that's what happened. I mean, I don't know. I haven't gone back and looked at my assignments, but uh, it'd be interesting to see how they changed kind of over the first semester to the second, to the third, to the fourth. Yeah, I find that, at least for me, writing and, and creating work is easier when I've recently read new things and exposed myself to new ideas because I can be like, oh, there's a tie right there. I can make a cool right. reference. Yeah, and yeah. It just makes the flow stay easier to get into. Because if I'm just reading the textbook, then it's, I don't know, there's just not as much interest in it. And you're just kind of trying to regurgitate what you read from one or two sources. Right. Which is the importance of kind of connecting ideas and not having them so available in your mind or having the Munger's latticework of mental models consistently available. So you're connecting to this kind of firm foundation in Mm -hmm. the brain as you're reading new things. And that uh, demonstrates learning. And I think it was like Richard Feynman who said, you know, there's a big difference between knowing what something is called and knowing what something is and how it mm. works. And we're so focused on knowing what things are called that we're not as focused on understanding how things work. Yeah. I mean, I love Richard Feynman. Yeah. I need to finish that Surely You're Joking book. I have it back on my shelf there. <laughs> um, like what you said about like the signaling value of your degree. There's a guy named Brian Kaplan. You might've heard of him and he's just like all over this signaling theory of education where the main value of a degree is the signaling it provides to, uh, to companies, not necessarily that, Oh, look, I have a degree, but, but that, Oh, look, this person went through the degree. They're able to tackle intellectually challenging work. Um, it's a good indicator that they're going to be able to tackle what we have for them. Yeah, well, the flip side of that is kind of, you know, I see through it, right? And I see how hollow mm-hmm. the MBA is. So then, um, you know, you can go down this rabbit hole of like, well, if people really value it, then what are they valuing? And are they, right. are, are they thinking enough about hiring um, that that factored in that they should probably rethink how they're doing that? And then it's like, well, do I want to work for a place that doesn't mm-hmm. apply that much thought to what they're doing? But yeah, I mean, uh, I, I was kind of doing it just as a... Um, I continued just to get that, just in case I ever needed it. So. Yeah. And I mean, on, on my end, I continued because I thought it would look terrible if yeah. the guy running a college website dropped out of college just because he didn't want to do it anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. But uh, I mean, we've had like Zuckerberg dropped out, Gates dropped mm-hmm. out. I mean, uh, was it Peter Thiel who created the, the 20... The, the, yeah, the Teal Fellowship Program. Yeah, the Teal Fellowship Program. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that education is incredibly important, but what's more important is kind of freedom of opportunity and equal opportunity. Right. And that's getting lost in the debate because school is getting so expensive that, you know, the mm-hmm. opportunities aren't the same for people. And some people can go to school and some people can't. And it's really more important that we all have equal opportunity from birth. And I think that that's um, becoming a little more challenging. Yeah, there's a lot of black and white in the education world. There's a lot of black and white everywhere because heuristics and all that stuff. But yeah. uh, one of the things I want to do is like sort of take that debate from don't go to college or go to college and put yourself in massive amounts of debt and be like, well, where's the middle? Like if yeah. you need if you need the curriculum, if you want the structure, how can you do that affordably or how can you yeah. do that maybe part time and then make sure you're learning on the outside as well? So I have this really cool idea. Maybe you can tell me what you think of it. So uh, I think it's cool anyway. But um, okay. I want to create like a Farnham Street scholarship, and I want to do it as perpetual. So if you acknowledge that 
not everybody has equal opportunity to go to university or post-secondary education. And you want to help people and equalize that opportunity, then you have to take money kind of out of the equation because money drives mm -hmm. a lot of these decisions. And in a way, it should, and in a way, it shouldn't, and we can kind of land on both sides of that. But what I was thinking of doing is creating a, a perpetual scholarship in the sense that anyone with, you know, um, anyone could apply, and the conditions would be that 1% of your salary for the rest of your life gets kind of put back into the scholarship. Interesting. So it becomes that's a cool idea. Self perpetuating and yeah. compounding and kind of takes over, right? So once you have 10 or 20 people go through, and you, you can kind of get that baseline, then at some point it starts steamrolling and you have all this money, assuming people are honest and they, they contribute back, which I think mm -hmm. they would be. Um, you would have all this money coming in and then you could do more and then you know, you'd have more people going through and then you could do even more. And I, I think that would be a really uh, a small way to kind of equalize some of this stuff out uh, and just put a little dent in the universe. But. Yeah, I really like that idea. Have you heard anything about the UK's model of student loans? No, what do they do? So it's interesting because, are you from Canada? Or are you yeah, from Canada. Okay, you, I don't know how they do it in Canada, but here in the U.S. it's crazy. You know, you take your debt and then you just sink or swim after that. Um, over there, and this was crazy because I wrote an article breaking down all the math of, you know, how much you have to pay back for a student loan and what it would actually look like with a, like a typical salary in basic majors. And then a commenter from the U.K. was like, well, this is terrible because over here you take out your student loans the universities are capped in what they can um, charge for tuition. I believe it's nine thousand pounds a year, or a semester. Which is still outrageous, right? It's still outrageous compared to like Germany and other places, yeah. or like uh, Finland where it's free. But compared to here, where you know I'm getting emails from people with two hundred eighty thousand dollars in debt, it's that's not insane. that bad. Yeah, that's but here's the cool thing: when you graduate, um, the the amount you pay back is capped at ten percent of your salary. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Over. 30,000 pounds a year, I think it is. Oh, okay. So if you don't make 30,000 pounds a year, you don't have to pay back until you do. And if you make a crap ton of money, then you may be paying back a little more than you took out. But hmm. it's kind of like a game theory situation. Like yeah. you may be individually getting a little bit of a worse deal in that case, but there's insurance if you lost your job or if you yeah. just weren't able to find something. So who's loaning that money though? Is that the government or is that? I believe it's the government, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and I mean, not you know, not everyone over there thinks the system is perfect yeah. or that can last, but it's an interesting concept, and it really ties into what you were wanting to do. Where um, I've seen lending models like this too, where it's like we'll lend you, uh, you know, a certain amount for college, and then the condition is that you would pay us back a position or a portion of your salary yeah. over the next X years, yeah. not necessarily the principal plus interest. Yeah. But it, so I think if I can capture one percent over the lifetime of somebody's earnings, that that's incredibly valuable, and we just count that back and kind of you know figure out what the averages would be, and I think it, it steamrolls pretty quickly. I remember going through university myself, and to pay for university, I, I didn't want to incur any debt, so I had to pull these heroic summers where all my friends were on the beach and I was working three jobs and, you know, 20 hours a day. <laughs> like literally I would go to the grocery store Sunday night at 12.01 AM and stock shelves until eight. And then from uh, till nine, I would drive to Staples and then I would work the day shift at like Staples from nine to five. And then from five thirty until nine thirty, I was working like at a clothing store at nine thirty. I'd go back to the grocery store, hang out in the back room and like plop myself to sleep. And then every Friday I would come home and I would literally go to sleep until Sunday. Like I'd wake up, I'd eat, but I'd be just this zombie. 
and you know it was not fun at all <laughs> yep yeah it's terrible um at least you were using that money to pay for college yeah. in high school i would i would get up at 6 a.m go to school get off at like three and immediately go to target and work in the food court till 10 PM. Yeah. But then I spent all that money on food and like yeah. eating out and stuff. So well, the, um, your time to spend it on anything. It was like mm-hmm. school starting before you know it. And it's like, Oh my God. But yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. Um, I think having a part-time job is good in school though, but if you can like get something close to your major or something that's going to build like soft skills or build your knowledge or something. Definitely. Yeah. But like flipping burgers is just, I don't know. Like if you have to do it, do it. But um, in my, in, in my experience, if you can gain some skills, then you can find ways to avoid it, Yeah, which is cool. So, um, you mentioned Kahneman earlier, yeah. which, you know, I'd love to pick your brain about that because I only got about 120 pages into thinking fast and slow before I was like, this is too hard. I got to take a break from it, but I'm guessing you probably finished it, right? Uh, I, I've skimmed thinking fast and thinking slow. So. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Cause I read a lot of, I mean, a couple of years ago, I read a lot of his original work. Uh, oh, okay. So the book was, uh, you know, I have it, I use it for reference material a lot, mm-hmm. but it's not something I actively have like sat down and read cover to cover in front of the fireplace. But, okay. Uh, I think Michael Lewis actually helped read him write the book, which was one of the, like helped him with the writing process, not the actual mm-hmm. words, which is kind of what actually made me buy the book in the first place. Cause I was wondering, you know, what would be new here? I don't think he's done a lot of work, but he has some very interesting insights that he drew from, you know, a lifetime of studying biases. And that was like, I'm no better than I was right And I'm spent. Yeah. So what hope do people like us have if, you know, the preeminent noble moderate? Um, you know, guy who studied biases for his entire life essentially um, says he's no better at recognizing and preventing them than uh, we are. And I, I think that that's a really um, interesting problem. And I think it's actually solved in a way by um, Charlie Munger, which I thought was fascinating. Mm. So he has a, a two step framework for making decisions. So one is acquiring knowledge, but two is making it useful. And so right. I think Kahneman has a ton of knowledge, but he hasn't put it in a way that makes it useful. Mm-hmm. And if you think about Buffett and Munger, all they've really done, and I don't mean this in a bad way at all, is they've taken other people's concepts and ideas and simplified them and applied them and made a ton of money off them. So when you think about like competitive strategy, Michael Porter wrote you know, the preeminent textbook on competitive strategy and he's an HBS prof and, you know, he's widely known. Well, you know, Buffett and Munger have applied his concepts and made billions of dollars off them. And then when you think about Kahneman, it's like, well, he did all the work, but it was really, you know, a couple people have figured out, well, how do I apply that work? So one of the things that Munger does, which I find really interesting is that he just has this double kind of filter when he makes decisions, which is on one hand, it's like, do I understand the decision? Is it within my circle of competence? That doesn't mean we don't have to make the decision, but it means we, we should think, you know, maybe I can explore somebody's circle of competence that it is in. I can take other steps at that point, but do I understand the key variables that govern the situation? Blah, blah, blah. And you kind of go through the list. And then the second thing he does, which I think is where Kahneman stuff becomes really applicable is like, how am I fooling myself? And so he kind of goes through the mental list of a lot of these human misjudgments. And by putting that into a simple, repeatable framework that you can update and making it a habit, I think he's actually applied it way better than, you know, 99.9% of other people. And he's made it useful and he's made it, you know, less onerous to apply than 
um, you know, kind of just sitting there going, oh, well, I don't, I don't know how I should make this decision. Uh, I should probably think about availability bias, right? And, right. you know, so I think that Munger's done a great job in terms of simplifying a really easy framework to, that's repeatable and applies to multiple decisions, and it's lightweight and adoptable and updatable. And, and I think that um, we don't like it because it's simple, right? It can't be that simple, but what we don't do is, like, look to success and try to emulate that kind of success and say, well, what are they doing right? What is... Uh, why, why are these two guys who, you know, by all accounts are, are smarter than average, but their results are way better than would be indicated by their IQ. So how did that happen? And we don't explore that. I mean, we never even talked about them once, I think, in my MBA. And, you know, but we did talk about complicated airlines and we talked about you know, <laughs> these failed manufacturing businesses that are, you know, with hundreds of different parts. And we talk about all the complexity, but we're not saying, well, you know, Maybe there's a lot in this simplicity. Yeah, it's funny because I think a lot more people, not a whole lot of people get up and Google, what do the most successful people in the world do every day and then do that? Yeah. Rather, we're looking for like, oh, what's the tiny little productivity technique that no one knows, like the Zen Buddhist, like, uh, you know, Kung Fu little thing that uh, I can learn and then it'll just make my life better. Because we, we want, like, the silver bullet. We, right. we don't want, like, oh, here's a simple algorithm that you can implement in your brain, and then you just have to run it and make sure it works and do hard work to, you know, or, implement it. Or the flip side is not necessarily what they do, but what don't they do? Why, mm-hmm. why don't we study what they avoid, right? And, and study, like, the simplicity of what they do is... I was thinking about this um, a lot recently. So when you think about... Um, really good managers they don't tend to micromanage and then you think about the context of an organization and it's really hard to be in an organization and not micromanage because if your boss is a micromanager you're going to have to be a micromanager but if we look on the outside we can see that you know you get these kind of non-linear results from people who don't micromanage and their mm-hmm. lives are less stressful. They trust people, so people want to work for them. They attract talent within organizations. I have a friend who works in the government, and um, you know it's really hard to attract talent to his part of the organization, but everybody wants to work for him because he doesn't micromanage. He trusts people to get the job done. And everybody's like, well, what are you doing that's so different than the rest of us? Why does everybody want to work for you? And he's basically like, you know, I tell people what I want them to do and I kind of get out of the way and uh, they're all, we couldn't do that because the whole (laughs) culture of the, the, the organization is, Oh, we're so busy. You run around, you know, I I don't have any time to do anything. Uh, My people are incompetent without me. And he's kind of just done the opposite of all of that conventional wisdom and it's paid, you know, incredible dividends to the quality of his life and everybody's happiness and the meaning that he drives from work. But we don't copy that stuff, right? But if you look back to it, well, Buffett and Munger have built, you know, this $300 billion company by essentially doing the same thing, right? They don't micromanage. They, they set the parameters for which the CEOs of all these companies can operate. They stay out of the way. You want to call me, then I'll help out. Um, and we don't think about, oh, well, maybe that's a better model. And then you start thinking about knowledge work and then organizations. And if you do micromanage, you come up with, eventually, we run into this kind of, I've seen this happen where organizations have so many policies that people can't think anymore. Right. And so this happens, right? Because we've 
we've encouraged it to happen just slowly and not intentionally. It's not the outcome we're looking for. It's just over time. It's like, well, you can't do anything without checking with me. Oh, we should standardize that. I know I pay you to think, but really you're that McDonald's worker. I'm just paying you six figures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause you, you don't have the freedom. You don't have the, um, drive anymore. And so we don't motivate people, but we definitely demotivate them through, yeah. through the organizations and how that happens. And then, so the opposite, just to tie it back is, you know, how do you motivate people? Well, it's autonomy and mastery. You actually encourage these skills and you kind of get out of the way and you become the, the responsibility person where if things go wrong. You, you obviously have to account for that. Um, but if they don't go wrong, then, you know, that's a really good way to operate. And even when they do go wrong, it's like, well, this is the problem. So the, the person I was speaking about who works for the government, if he fails, everybody's just waiting for him to fail, but nobody notices the fact that he's had success for the past eight years. But the mm-hmm. minute the minute anything slips up, everybody will be all over him and be like, see, it didn't work. And that, that's just really shallow kind of thinking to me. And, yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's just people's tendency to want to do what it's always been done. You know, it's just kind of like our habits we want. Uh, things that are within the realm of the familiar. Right. And so it, it comes back to Keynes, right? It's better to fail uh, conventionally than succeed unconventionally. Right. Yeah. But when you think about it, it makes sense to give people autonomy, you know, um, because if you hire somebody you think is incompetent, who can't do things without you, then why did you hire that person? You know, you're just creating more work for yourself. And exactly. I'm getting to the point where I'm actually hiring people at this point. I've been doing my own thing for four and a half years. And uh, I have two team members now. And one of the things I like made sure to get straight in my mind when I hired them was like, I'm going to let them do the work that I've hired them for. I'm not going to micromanage because I know that if I get micromanaged in my work, I quit or I shut down and I just don't do good work when I have freedom. I create great things. So I would apply that to my team members too. And if they don't, then I'll just not have them on my team rather than try to turn them into a pen that I doodle with. So that's easy to start, but the first time they do something that you, you don't want to do, right, or that you wouldn't have done that way, that's when it really becomes uh, yeah. challenging. But I, I admire that. I hope you can continue that for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely trying. So the most recent person I hired was someone to edit my podcasts. And, you know, she's doing a great job. But like the first episode, I, I noticed a few things that were not what I would have done. Like, oh, the transition is a little bit too short here. Right. Um, you know, and I, I can mention those things, but I try to keep in mind always, I'm going to point out the good first and then maybe like mention, okay, I would do these things this way, but you're doing great work and just, uh, you know, try to make it sound good. And I'm just going to let it go for a while and just see how it goes. And as long as I'm satisfied with the work, then I am not going to be like, oh, here's a giant checklist you have to follow and yeah, yeah. make sure you hit every policy. <laughs> So I have a question on the podcast. How uh, I, I, something I've been thinking about a lot recently. I mean, how hard is that to to do and start, and how much work is involved in the back end? And I would imagine it's an incredible amount of work, which is one of the reasons I've hesitated. Kind of. So for a podcast, you mean? Yeah. Okay, so it's uh, it is a lot of work at first, but I think it's something you can really boil down to a system, which is what I've done. And I actually had a few friends that have asked me to come help them launch their own podcast. So the Productivity Show by Asian Efficiency. My friend Adam Carroll's launching one soon. Uh, my friend Grant Baldwin did How Did You Get Into That? And I helped them get those launched. So basically what you do is um, you, know, you get a mic. And what I have set up is like an audition is my editing program. I've got um, like a template. So when I record this, I can take the file. I can throw it right in there with the intro. I can mix it down. 
um, upload that to my host. And then from there, it's just a process of writing the show notes. Hmm. And I was doing that all myself. You know, it does take a while. I think it might, it might take about the same time as it takes to write a good blog post. Okay. Because it's going to take me about an hour to interview you. Okay. Um, so that's like the hour of time after that, if I was still doing this myself, it would take me maybe 20 minutes to half an hour to edit. And then another 20 minutes to half an hour to write the show notes. If I was really focused on it Okay. now, I'm going to interview you. I'm going to write, I'm going to do the intro and then I'm going to throw that stuff in drive. And my team member will do all that for me, which is awesome. Nice. Yeah. And I've got friends who they have a daily podcast. Oh, wow. So for them, it's gotten to the point where they, it's basically, they have to do that Wednesday. They show up to interview like eight people. It's like all day. And then I think, I think one of them still edits it, but everything else is taken care of by team member, which is good. So once you get it down to a system, you know, just like anything else, you start learning the uh, little efficiency shortcuts and stuff you can do. Oh, cool. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you have specific questions, I'd be happy to so, talk to you after this is done. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> or I mean, if you have a question now, yeah. Well, what, what was the impetus behind the podcast? Was it just another way to reach out to members in a meaningful way? Or was it a way to build your community? Was it... Uh, something for you to explore. I mean, all of the above, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Oh yeah, sure. So, um, I guess there's a few reasons. Number one is it's a really good way to talk to really smart people for an hour who wouldn't otherwise talk to you. Um, you know, like people who are really smart and who have big followings, they are busy. So if I can say, Hey, Alex, you know, get your message out to a thousand people or more, then it's more likely to talk to me. Um, but the, the main reason is I started listening to podcasts a few years ago and I realized more often than not, I would read somebody or I would listen to somebody's podcast episodes and I would skip their blog posts or I would really skim through their blog posts, but I would take their podcast with me to the gym. And I started feeling like I knew these people. Like I listened to Pat Flynn's podcast. I'm like, I know this guy, you know, I I could probably call him up on the phone and have a conversation with him right now. Um, and I went to a conference where he did a podcasting session and he basically confirmed what I had believed. Like when you start a podcast, people, feel like they know you. Um, the most, you know, the most common way people find me now is my podcast and they come up to me and be like, yeah, the podcast is great. And he's like, what about the blog? I don't know, man. Podcast is what I listen to. So I just wanted to sort of build that relationship with my readers and I try to make it two ways. So once a month we also do a Q and a episode with my roommate and my girlfriend and I want to make it, I want to build channels for it to be a two way street rather than just a publishing company. Cool. That's interesting. Yeah. So is it something that you've been wanting to do or? Uh, it's something I, I, I don't know about wanting. I mean, uh, I've been thinking a lot about it and about how I would go about it. Um, mm. putting a lot of thought into listening to, to high quality people like yourself and Tim Ferriss and uh, yeah. other, um, podcasts, just kind of thinking like, what I'm trying to get a sense of how much work that would be. And if I ever did anything, it would um, definitely be irregular mm-hmm. because I wouldn't want to be, kind of tied down to a, a consistent schedule, but uh, I've done the long form interviews with people and uh, kind of Paris review style. And I find that, you know, they're not as well received as the content should indicate. Right. So I think that a better format is audio or video uh, yeah. for people's engagement. But then the flip side of that is, you know, I don't know much about podcasts. So, so you've done, you mean long form interviews with uh, like text? Yeah, with like, you know, 10,000 words. And uh, gotcha. what I started to do instead of like going back and forth with people over email is having conversations, transcribing those conversations and, you know, sending them out, kind of like vetting them a bit because um, 
when you're talking to somebody on the phone, sometimes, you know, off the record stuff slips out and mm-hmm. make sure that nothing is, is getting out that they don't want to get out. But even that is a lot of work, right? Like you yeah. have a conversation, you record it, you transcribe it. You, I mean, that's a, just a ton of effort. And then people don't seem to consume that in the way that uh, resonates, which is kind of disheartening when you think about our culture, but, um, I think uh, the medium really matters. So I make a podcast, I make a blog post and a video every week. So I'm in all three. And I think a lot about like, which type of medium would be best for a type of message. And the thing about podcasts is people take them with them to uh, low, low thought intensity activities that are long. So, you know, they can on the road or while they're cooking or while they're going for a walk or the gym. And that is the best place to capture someone's attention. So if you want to have a long form interview or something like that, I think that's a really good medium for that. And for me, the only types of posts that have ever been successful that are like 10,000 words plus have been big list posts. And I'm not even sure if people read them all, but they're like easily shareable. (laughs) Yeah, I I totally get that. I mean, everybody wants the soundbite and that like I did an awesome interview with Ed Hatz and Mm -hmm. I think it's like one of the best things uh, that I've come across in a long time. He's got so much information that it's just, you know, but nobody, uh, the average time on the page, I was like, nobody's reading this, right? It's just, it was sad to me that I didn't connect with people, something that I thought was incredibly meaningful. And I either didn't present it in a way that connected with them and resonated, or uh, it was just too long. And people, uh, you know, you kind of like save it, I'll come back to it. And then you, you know, you find the next BuzzFeed list and you're, you're gone down the internet rabbit hole and you don't come back. Yeah. So, so I was thinking, you know, podcast <laughs> might be a better way to to do that. But then I don't know. Like I need to kind of think, I guess, a little bit more about that. Well, I think if you did one, it would be super interesting. So one thing about mine is like it's a college podcast. So when I get into topics that I'm really interested in, sometimes I have to really stretch it. Like I would love to interview somebody on like like Bayesian reasoning or something. Yeah. But I have to find a way to tie it back into education, which education is really big. So, um, I can sort of finagle that a little bit, but you're still kind of tied into a topic. But with you, it's like, my topic is knowledge. The topic is updating beliefs and learning more about the world. There's so much like places you can go with that. Well, in a way you're you're the same, right? Like education is about Mm -hmm. continuing to get smarter. You know, it's kind of the motto to my website. I want to go to bed smarter than I woke up in the morning. Right. And yeah. I, I can't figure that out myself. So I'm going to copy everybody who has a better idea than I do. Uh, and luckily, I mean, there's tons of people out there with better ideas. And like podcasting is another example. I and mean, you've been doing it for a long time now. And it's just a matter of, does that fit with what I want to do? And can I accomplish that in a way that's on par with, you know, um, the ones that I really like listening to. And I don't know. That's that gets tricky, but yeah, well, dude, I would be happy to help uh, later on. Yeah, but I love I love that that sort of tagline. Like, I want to go to bed smarter than when I woke up today. Uh, it sort of fits into my my like my core value in life is I want to make the world a smarter and happier place, both for myself and yeah. for everyone else. And it, it like comes back to this concept of like map and territory. Like, I have a map in my mind, and I want it to represent the territory and the universe better every single day. So whether it's through reading or creating or talking to yeah. people on a podcast. So I, I think that's noble, right? It's a bit, how do we, how do we continue to learn and create a more meaningful life for ourselves and share that with other people in a way that resonates with them in a way that they might not have otherwise come across or thought about and discovered. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked a lot about Munger and Buffett. So who are some of the other like big influences in your life that have influenced your thinking, like authors or maybe people you talk to? Uh, Peter Bevelin has been a big influence. He wrote Seeking Wisdom, which is okay. my all time favorite books. And, um, he comes back to Munger. So, I mean, he's kind of just taken Munger's approach, um, and put it out into the open. So I have a lot of respect for that. Um, Nassim Taleb is somebody that I have a lot of, a lot of time mm. for and a reading concept. And, um, you know, I think he has some great ideas that can come across a little brash, but, um, I think he's underappreciated. For all the attention he gets, I still think he's underappreciated. And he wrote Anti-Fragile, right? Yeah, so he wrote, like, Fooled by Randomness, The Black Swan, mm. Anti-Fragile. Um, if you read Fooled by Randomness, I mean, the seeds of Black Swan and Anti-Fragile are in that book. So if you're going to read one and not three, definitely recommend starting with that. That was his first book. Um, and what's that one about? So that's kind of, like we don't expect the world to be random and we're constantly fooled by it. And then we create these narratives around that randomness saying, Oh, well, it wasn't really random. And, you know, we don't expect to see, we don't expect things to happen, but when they do happen, we just kind of explain them away. And a better approach is like living your life going, Oh, well, you know, uh, was this random? How much of it was random? Can I expect bad things to happen? Am I prepared for bad things to happen? How should I think about this? And um, he kind of updated that a lot through the Black Swan and then um, Anti-Fragile, which I find is writing a little bit difficult, which is good, right? Because you have to work to understand it. When you work to understand something, you actually value it more. Uh, and you get more out of it because you're putting in the effort. But the flip side of that is if you have to work too hard, you just give up, right? Yeah. Um, I really like the concept of the how we assign causality to everything and think that you know random things are meant to be. Um, I grew up in a religious household, and one of the things I was always told in church is like, you are going to go through hard times in your life. Like, it's it's like planned for you. So I grew up in high school, like waiting for it to happen. Like, whoa, when's my life going to start sucking? Uh, <laughs> when, when am I going to be tested? You know, that kind of thing. And I realized now, like, that's not a guarantee. Yeah. Like, my life isn't guaranteed to be good, but it's not guaranteed to be bad. Like, I'm not guaranteed to have a bad thing happen. So really, all I can do is sort of try to be mindful yep. and and plan for things that may happen or at least like, say, what would I do in this situation or how, how would my mental models fit this potential disaster and uh, what can I do now to avoid it? Yeah. And I think a lot of them, a lot of those terrible, you know, tribulations that we think are planned for us could probably be avoided just with mindfulness. Yeah, totally. I mean, we're always uh, seeking, well, what is it? We're seeking to be brilliant and not avoiding stupidities. Yeah. That's, that's a good, yeah, that's a good quote. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So... Avoiding stupidity is easier than seeking brilliance, right? And we're often focused on... <laughs> you think about it in an organizational concept or even a life concept, we all want to have that brilliant idea, but nobody wants to go through life just avoiding folly. And it seems much more profitable in many ways in terms of happiness and wealth and everything else to just avoid folly. Yeah, that really does make a lot of sense. And I think a lot of it is just being able to anticipate something that's going to happen and then taking care like taking action on that. Yeah. And, and kind of being prepared for the, the range of outcomes. Like when I talk to my friends and, you know, a lot of them are fragile and they, they don't know it in a financial sense and they make decent mm. money, but they haven't set any aside. So if anything bad were to happen, 
you know, that could just spiral really quickly. Whereas, you know, if you put money aside as you're making money and you just pretend it doesn't exist, then if something bad happens, you have kind of a nest egg. And I mean, they're fortunate mm. to, to be in a position where they can do that. That, yeah, that's a fantastic piece of advice. There's a concept I've been wrangling with for a while and I want to write a post about it. It's just so big. It's just hard for me to get words out about it, but, um, I want to write about like analyzing your life's dependencies. Oh, that's like, a really interesting idea. Yeah. Like every, so your life is an amalgamation of different components. Like you, you know, the, the easy ones, you live in a house, you drink water, you know, you get money and all that kind of stuff. And then it goes higher. Like what are your values? What are your friends? What yeah. are your interests? Um, and what do those depend on and what do your goals depend on? And like, what would happen if one of those dependencies went away? What would you do or how, what can you do now to make sure it doesn't go away? Hmm. And like the, the easy example I came up with was, um, like a living situation. So in college we were in a dorm and the next year we're going to go to an apartment. Well, so many people were like, Oh, I'm moving to an apartment in August. I'll start looking in June. And then they look in June and everything is filled. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, well, my living, my living space dependency is dependent on having something locked down. So I'm going to go like ask landlords, what's the best time to start looking for housing in this town? Oh, it's 10 months in advance. Yeah. I'm glad I went and asked. (laughs) That's, that's a really good way to think about it. I don't think I've ever uh, considered that, but yeah. So yeah, for me, that's just like, it's part of the being mindful, uh, approach to living well. Um, so I guess to round this out, I want to leave somebody, I want to leave listeners with like a practical piece of advice on reading. So do you take notes when you read books sure. and like, how do you do that? Yeah. So I, I definitely take notes. I take notes when I'm, uh, I take notes on a couple of things. It depends on mm-hmm. why I'm reading again. Right. Okay. So one of the things that I do is I kind of use the front and back of any book to just keep mm-hmm. my notes. Um, so when I'm reading a book, I'll like have a little section for, you know, potential blog posts. I'll have a little section for kind of connecting things. I'll have a little section for like my own index of the book um, in terms of uh, where is there an interesting idea I've never heard about that I want to look up. And then I'll have on the back, I'll kind of go through, uh, if I'm reading it really intensely, it's like the structure of the argument that the book is presenting. Uh, with page references to kind of the key points as I see them. Mm. Uh, And then what I'll try to do is if I'm reading something to acquire knowledge, like if I was in school again, I would actually be trying to connect those ideas and translate them into a common vocabulary that I hold that I can map two or three different writers into the same, who are writing on the same topic into my vocabulary, right? So at the end of reading the book, I would kind of like close it take out a blank sheet of paper and write down the structure and argument as I see it. And if I needed to look back in the book, I'd look back in the book and then I would keep that one page summary as my kind of go-to for the next book. And then I would read the next book and then try to see where the arguments overlap and where they're weak and, you know, how to kind of translate that into something that I understand and I can talk about because each author is going to write about things. They're going to use slightly different vocabulary and it's your job as the reader to kind of translate that into something that's common for you. And that demonstrates an incredible amount of understanding, right? But that's really hard, hard reading. But I think that 
you come away with a better fundamental sense of knowledge. But generally speaking, I mean, I'm reading, I'm kind of like, oh, this is a really interesting idea. I often end up with two copies of the book, so I end up with a physical copy because I much prefer physical copies. And then for some reason, you know, I end up with like a lot of Kindle copies um, because I just, so I don't necessarily want to keep all my books, but I, I do want to keep the references. So the system that I have right now, which is pretty poor and I'm working on fixing it for 2015 is I'll read a book. I put it on my desk for a couple of weeks, uh, and then I'll order the shelf and then I'll pull it out and then I'll kind of go through it again and I'll go through all of my notes and all of my underlines and all of my marginalia. And I'll be like, well, what still resonates with me at this point? So it was interesting in the moment. Uh, but letting time kind of be a filter in terms of what I want to keep in my head. And so the second time I go through it, that's when I really determine, oh, well, here are the three or four things that I want to really take away from this book. And then I've distilled all of that marginalia down to a couple key ideas. And, yeah. Interesting. I, that sounds really deliberate, and I think I need to implement something like that into my own reading, especially the whole review system you have. Yeah. And I like the... You know, I talk about this, but I, I don't know if I'm doing it myself. Like, you know, I read to teach, but I don't know exactly what I want to teach. You know, I tell people, read for what you're going to be assessed on, read for what you need to use. Um, what I'm doing, I think I'm being more deliberate than I used to be, whereas I would just go through books and read them, and that was it in the past. Yeah. And uh, right now I'm reading The Power of Habit, nice. and every time I finish a chapter, I'll go through, I'll, like, review the chapter, and I'll write notes and Evernote on that yeah. chapter. So that's a good idea, too, right? At the end of every chapter, summarize the chapter in your own words, and then try to apply it to your life. What did you yeah. you can apply? And then that will cement. And then at the end, you could kind of amalgamate all those things. And I've been starting to use Evernote a lot lately too, but um, I think that's a great, great tool for kind of keeping the knowledge and then keeping it fresh. And the, there's a theory, I forget who came up with it, about time-space kind of memorization. And so, oh, yeah, the spacing effect. Yeah, so, I mean, you could time it. It'd be interesting to create an app or something that would pull out... Evernote pages with a tag so that every day you would just review three or four pages. That's a smart idea. Right. The, and then, yeah. and it would randomly or not randomly, it would time sequence that. And so as your Evernote got bigger, you just have a little bit more to flip through every day, but it would space it so that you would always be familiar and always memorize. And I think that that when memorize is the wrong word, but you, you, just integrate it into your knowledge. Like exactly. Yeah. Be able to recall it better, you know? Exactly. And when you can recall it better, it's available. When it's available, you can apply it better. And when it, you can apply it better, you can insert it into your kind of framework. So you, you kind of create this virtuous circle of uh, applying what you're learning. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think if ever noticed like my second brain and that would be a really cool integration with that. Uh, they have like peak, which I think is just flashcards, but it's just oh, like, okay. It's very basic flashcards. Yeah. And then, like, there's Anki, which is uh, space repetition software, but you kind of have to build your flashcards out of that. You can't really pull Evernote into it. So it'd be kind of a cool integration. Um, maybe there is something like that. I should look at their little trunk. Well, if there's not, I mean, somebody should do that for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll build it. I won't build it. <laughs> there's no time, but I wish there was more time in a day yeah. to do things. I would love to, like, become a singer and like do more video and all kind of stuff. Um, I have a question for you. I mean, okay. one thing I toy with and just in terms of living a meaningful life is I often work backwards. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I often think like when I'm 70 or 80, you know, hopefully I, I, I last that long and live a happy and healthy life. But what, 
what things would I regret not doing? And then what things do I need to avoid? Right. Okay. Um, so I often think backwards about that instead of like, everybody's like, well, what makes me happy in the moment? And, you know, if I wanted to be happy in the moment, I'd probably go shoot heroin, but, <laughs> but this is going to wreck my life and destroy me. But the flip side of right. that is like, we're so, when we focus on the immediate, we're so short term. So I've been trying to kind of flip that around and focus on like, if I were to live a whole and happy life, what is it that I would look back upon that I'm doing today and say that was a waste of time or that wasn't very meaningful or how can I, I live a better life? Just kind of looking back. I don't know if anybody's explored that that you know of. Or Yeah, I actually have a few different ideas on this. So one thing that I tell a lot of students and I've written about is uh, you know, a lot of students, they go to college and they have like two goals, like I want to graduate and I want to get a good job or I make money yeah. and that's it. Yeah. And I encourage them to think about what do you want your life to look like yeah, in, in 10 years? Like not, not, oh, I'm making 70 K and I'm, uh, you know, I'm a computer programmer. Yeah. Like, what do you do after work? Like, who, are you married? Do you have kids? Like, do you live in a house? Do you travel? Are you like location independent? All these different things like ties into how your life's going to look. And then for me personally, there's that idea of like, what do I want to see when I look back at my body of work in 10 years? Right. And this is uh, very important to my motivation levels because sometimes the stress of being an entrepreneur and doing everything on your own is like, sometimes you're like, oh man, it would just be so much easier to go get a job. They would tell me what to do. I could come home, I could play Mass Effect or whatever I'm playing. Yeah. Uh, it'd be relaxing, right? But I just, the moment I go to, if I look back in 10 years and I see that, what am I going to think? I'm going to be, I'm going to be super mad, you know? Yeah. It's I want to look back in 10 years and be like, I made like all those videos and wrote books and did all that cool stuff. So that's kind of my work version of it. Um, the most direct application. So you're, you're talking about like when I'm like at the, you know, twilight years of my life, I want to look back and see like what was valuable. Just, what did I want to do? To, there's all these things you want to do and you can't, you, you kind of have to prioritize that. And I've been flipping that around and, I'm toying with it, right? It's not a complete thought in the sense of one way to help you prioritize the immediate and what you want to do is to kind of look backwards from how you want your life to live when you're kind of reading your, you know, what do you want your eulogy to say? And you, you just talked a little bit about it. I mean, I, I think what I hear you saying is, you know, doing your own thing and being an entrepreneur allows you, you connect with thousands of people on a daily basis and you add meaning and value to their lives. And that's something that would be incredibly difficult inside of an organization, despite the fact mm. that you probably have more stability and more, um, you know, direction in terms of where things are going and structure, but you wouldn't be as happy because you get some sort of meaning and value out of doing that. Right. Right. Um, and I think that that's incredibly important. And, and I think as we go forward, kind of, these niche kind of media um, where people add meaning through curation or meaning through exposing people to things that they didn't know they were interested in or meaning through adding knowledge becomes even more important um, mm -hmm. as we get into the world of, you know, pre-filtered searches and you, you need to trust people out there to have your best interests at heart and not necessarily Google results because those are going to get pretty selective pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, writing for the people and not writing for the search engines, that yeah. kind of thing. And so when you're in an organization, I mean, it sounded like you kind of look back and you, you'd regret how that all played out. And even if what you're doing doesn't work, then, um, you know, it doesn't sound like you'll 
I don't think that's the case, but it doesn't sound like you'll have many regrets, right? And then you have this... Yeah. So the flip side of that, I, I told my friend who, who graduated from UConn and started a business on day one, literally like right after graduation, and the business ultimately wound down, but that experience was just this amazing thing. So he's 26 now and he went to a job interview. He's like, yeah, I've run my own company for four years. Uh, I've done all of these things. And they're just like blown away by this. So despite the fact that it didn't work out as he intended, they were blown away by the fact that he's done this. He's hired people. He's, you know, did regulatory and compliance thing. He's talked with lawyers. He's had all of these experiences that, you know, a lot of people don't get exposure to when you just join a company and it's like you're a cog in a wheel it's like everybody was dependent on you. Your job was, you know, 18 hours a day and uh, he wouldn't change anything for the world. And I think that that's kind of amazing. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might just be a little bit of like availability heuristic. Like, oh, I can, I can pick, you know, 10 things that I do now and be like, I love those things. They're valuable. Um, but when I think of like the prospect of being in an organization, there's, I just kind of draw a blank. Like, <laughs> I don't know what I'd be doing. You know, I could be amazingly fulfilling, but I don't know. So I just sort of gravitate back to like the one internship I did sitting in a cubicle. Yeah. Like, well, that's, that's representative of all organizations and working in jobs when it's not, yeah, you know, exactly. not even in the slightest, but I don't know. You get that of, idea. I don't know a lot of people who work for large organizations that, uh, you know, get excited by their jobs. <laughs> yeah. I think if I, you know, if I quit this and start doing something else, I would want to be in a small team yeah. where, you know, you just, you feel more autonomous and like you have more to contribute when you're part of a small team. So that kind of thing. Um, you're asking like looking back at a whole life. So I don't know if you saw this when you're on the site, but I have a page called my impossible list. And I think what you're talking about sort of ties into like this bucket list concept. Like yeah. what do I want to have done, uh, over my lifetime? But bucket lists are so, I don't know, wishful maybe like, Oh, I, I want to be able to say I went to Turkey and saw the top or saw all the architecture, I don't know, some crazy goal, but you don't really implement it. So with mine, it's like, I, I write down all the things that are valuable in my life, all my goals in different, different uh, areas, but I also like iterate on the ones I've done yeah. and I make sure that I'm planning out certain ones and I, I write the ones that I'm working on. So it's kind of like, I'm always able to take a look at what I, what I value in my life, what I want it to look like and what I'm currently focusing on. That's a good way to think about it. I mean, I, I personally don't, I'm not a big bucket list person. I, I want my life to be not dependent on doing a list of things. I want it to be happy and fulfilling just in an everyday sense, right? Like I, I don't, I don't go to the gym because I don't want to go to the gym to go to the gym. I mean, I just want to live a happy and healthy lifestyle and that means walking more and it means using a car less and it means doing all these other things. But to me, that's fulfilling. That's part of my bucket list, but it's not an item that you just check like you've done. It's something right. that just integrate into your, your life. And I mean, I love traveling and I love seeing new things and I love learning new things, but I think we get too focused on those as goals instead of just the process by which they were living life. And when you're focused on, you know, I want to go bungee jumping, I want to save up money to travel around Europe, I want to do all of this, you become very outcome focused versus very process focused. Mm. And I, I think that uh, as long as you're conscious of that, that's a really good thing. But my personal opinion is just kind of, I want to be focused on the process. And if I die tomorrow, I don't want to have any regrets about the way that I live and not that I was focused on some distant goal that I may or may not get to. 
Um, yeah. Life is so short and it's so fragile. We, we never know what's going to happen. And I just think it's incredibly important, um, at least for me, to kind of be cognizant of that and every year try to make my life a little bit more meaningful and more better for myself on a daily basis instead of these specific events, right? Yeah, I like that a lot. It's actually a really great counter view. Uh, you know, I'm like, I'm a, I'm into video games and I kind of like view a lot of things as like achievements and, uh, I like to check off habits and things like that, but it really is important to focus on the process and focus on like, did I actually get a fulfilling day in today or was I just I mean, you can preoccupied on a goal and you lose sight of how you're accomplishing them because you become so cool. I mean, it's the mountain mm-hmm. all over again, right? The guys on Everest or K2 who die because they're so focused on their, their goal. And I, I totally understand that. And I, in a way I'm that person, which is why I have this kind of counterbalance to it, mm. um, where you lose sight of what's really important. And it's not the goal. It's, you know, the process of the goal is something you achieve and it lasts seconds. Yeah. The process of achieving that goal lasts, you know, years and, and sometimes uh, decades. And that is, if you don't, if you're only deriving meaning from the goal, it's going to be a really, I don't know, to me that, that doesn't work because I think that's pretty sad. And if you need to make sure that the process to accomplish those goals is what's really fulfilling to you. And those goals are just kind of reinforcement to that process working. Yeah. So I, I think there's a balance to be found yeah. there because uh, for one, like you want to set goals and you want to not be susceptible to the you know, just the thinking that, Oh, it's hard right now. I don't like it. So I'm going to quit because I think you really have to dive in and like do combat with the goal. But on the other hand, um, I do try to be mindful of that list. And I'm like, well, do I actually value this anymore? And if not, I'll strike it off. Um, my, both my roommate Martin and I are very goal oriented. We're very list oriented and to counterbalance that because we will work all day if we let ourselves. So what we've done in the past is there's this, uh, there's like this Zig Ziglar workbook called pick four where you like pick four goals to work on and you write your progress every day for six weeks. Well, we made one of the goals have fun. Nice. Like literally like I stopped at six and hung out with my girlfriend today. We went for a hike or something, you know, like just to be, I think a lot of us are just susceptible to that workaholic like cycle of just, you know, chase the goal at the end of the, at the end of the rainbow and don't actually stop and look at the beauty of the rainbow. Yeah, we, we get lost in, in our goals and our ambitions, and then we realize it when it's too late. If we're lucky, um, we realize that at, at some point, you know, well before the end of our life. And mm-hmm. we use that as an opportunity to change our lives. And not everybody is so fortunate. It's a lot of people, I mean, um, in the book, um, 30 Lessons for the Living, um, I, I think it's Carl Pilmer, he interviewed um, all these senior citizens, and a lot of them didn't realize that in the moment and they realized it when they couldn't do anything about it versus, you know, you can change and you can adapt. And I think all of that is just being mindful and present and kind of thinking about how you live your life on a regular basis instead of, I mean, everybody gets reflective this time of year going into the new year. We create these resolutions or, you know, however you want to think about that, but it's really about doing that on a more frequent basis. And you don't need December to roll around to start thinking about how you want to live your life and how it can be more meaningful to you and, yeah. Um, in the power of habit, I was talking about how significant life events make habits more malleable and, um, susceptible to change, right. which, you know, in organizations, that's often the only way, like a crisis is the only way you can actually change ingrained habits. But as an individual, I think it's much easier to start deliberately being like mindful about what you said, you know, 
about living a meaningful life and not just focusing on what's coming in the years from now. And really like when you interview people who are on their deathbed, like that's a pretty significant life event. So they do get reflective and they do say, Oh man, I want to change that. I would, if I could now, the sad part is I can't at that point. Yeah. Great dude. So with all the stuff that you've read and like, I think we connect in a lot of areas so we could talk for hours. Um, we are like an hour and 10 minutes, I want to say. So I'm gonna start wrapping up. Um, I guess I want to ask you, like, what's a book you're reading right now that you think would be useful for students or maybe something you read recently? Uh, I just finished a book called Essentialism last night, which I thought was really, oh, yeah? really good. Um, it's kind of about deliberate subtraction, right, in life and mm. kind of taking away. And I think that that's a theme that's important to me kind of going forward. So it's something I want to be more conscious of. but. We get so caught up in things that busy work and things that don't mean anything and don't contribute to our happiness or our goals. And we just do them because everybody else is doing them or because they're expected of us. And uh, I think that being more mindful of what's essential and what's not is really important. So, uh, Dude, that is the next book on my reading list. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, it's a bit of a pop book. like it, It's fairly popular, but it's... Uh, mm. It struck me as, you know, uh, I know I have quite a bit of marginalia in it. So it was, that's how I can judge, like, how interested I think I was in a book. And, okay. Um, yeah. So it was really good. I mean, I think I have four or five kind of blog posts lined up on uh, different excerpts that struck me as fascinating. And, yeah. That'll be awesome to read. So you said you get rid of a lot of your physical books, but you mark them up. Do you just give them to friends then? Uh, so, well, interestingly enough, what I usually do is the uh, uh, either give them to friends or I, um, if there's no Kindle book available, and this is going to sound horrible, uh, I'll often cut the spine off and scan. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Highlight it and plop it into Evernote uh, and then chuck or recycle, I guess, the, the rest of the book. And then uh, generally I just give them to the uh, local elementary book drive. Okay. so uh, it's hilarious they must get like 300 books a year from me <laughs> they must think you run a bookstore or something well I get a lot of unsolicited copies of books too right so mm. I, I tend to donate like the bestsellers and the popular books in the book drive and it's hilarious they show up and they're like oh do you have any books for the book drive and I'm like yeah and I give them a box and they're like oh my god a full box I'm like there's like 12 more right it's hilarious but yeah. so is that book of or that stack of four books behind you is that your current bookshelf then or uh, do you have a bigger one somewhere else so these are what came in the mail recently right so I got Legacy of Ashes the history of the CIA okay on the shoulder of giants which is the great works of physics and astronomy oh yeah yeah um my Paris Kitchen, a cookbook. Yeah. So this is kind of my filtering station. So when things come in, they get plopped on here, and then they, they kind of get distributed out. And uh, I often read based on what I'm curious on, but uh, I have a workshop coming up on decision-making in San Francisco called Rethink Decision-Making. So I'll be like kind of putting more effort into remembering and rereading some of the books that I've read on decision-making so I can have better conversations about them. Yeah. So sometimes cool. it's event driven, but sometimes it's curiosity driven. What are you reading right now? Um, well, I'm, I'm finishing up the power of habit. Yeah. And then I'm reading, uh, raising steam by Terry Pratchett. Okay. My first Discworld novel. So I didn't start where everyone says to start. Cause I just found it at the bookstore and I was like, that looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, starting to reread Harry Potter and the methods of rationality because he'll be finishing the, the final arc in February, I think. And I have like 
1500 pages to re-go through so I can remember all the plot th- uh, threads. Okay. And then Walter Pox, How to Study in College, oh, which was written like back in the 70s, the first edition. Um, I go to like, I still live in Ames, which is where Iowa State is, my, my school. And I still go to the library, even though I'm done. And I'll like go look through books just to try to find things that are interesting to blog about. And I found like the third edition of his book written back in like the 80s. And I was like, this is still a like, really good study advice. I should be oh, nice. you know, writing about this. Yeah. And then I looked it up on Amazon and it's like the current version of the book they are still using as a study text, but it's like 125 bucks. So I bought like the seventh edition from the nineties, which was okay. like a cent. And I'm like, this is not a whole, not a whole lot has changed. You know, they've yeah, updated yeah. some research studies, but a lot of the tips are the same, maybe renamed. So those are kind of the ones I'm perusing right now, but the power habit is the one that I'm really diving into and writing notes on. And I'm trying to build a habit of reading every day and summarizing every chapter, even if I don't feel like it. Cool. Are you going to share those? You know, I should do that. Um, I was thinking of maybe doing like a Derek Siver style, like note yeah, section for books or something. Exactly what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, because well, I mean, you do a lot more just like curation and pulling out like relevant bits, right? Yeah, so I mean, I opted for that. Um, I think that resonates a bit more with me. But at the start, um, I was doing a little bit more of the um, here's what I got away from things. And I do that occasionally now, but not very often. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I could do that. I, I want to write like a bunch of blog posts on this. Just what I've learned from habits uh, or about habits through that book has just really been changing the way I try to approach my life. So yep. I think it'd be good to write about, but maybe publishing those notes would be a good thing too. Cool. Awesome. So um, it's been awesome talking to you. And if people want to connect with you or read more of your work, where should they go? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at Farnham Street, F-A-R-N-A-M Street. Okay. And then uh, I'm online at FarnhamStreetBlog.com. And that's kind of the best ways to uh, to get in touch. Cool. Hey, man, thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Thomas. All right. Well, hopefully, and I'm sure you did, but hopefully you found something useful from this interview with Shane. Once again, if you have questions about college, about any part of the process, thomas at collegeinfogeek.com is my email. You can email me any of those questions. If you want to find my favorite resources for being better at college, productivity tools, um, ways you can get cheaper prices on textbooks, all the apps I use, stuff like that, go over to collegeinfogeek.com slash resources and find my favorite things. There's also a list of my favorite books, uh, essential reads for students, and this being a very book-centric episode, um, I definitely think you should check that out. One book I'm reading right now is called um, it's called The Discoverers by Daniel Borston. It was written back in the 80s, and it's kind of just an entire overview of man's technological progress. And it was kind of cool because it started out with uh, the development of clocks and calendars, and I had not realized how much ridiculous time and effort and how ridiculously difficult it was to create clocks before we had the technology that we have now, and how much time, the perception of time has shifted from this um it's just like constant flow of time. And now we have it very regimented into seconds and the, t- the clock ticks and everything. And we've, we've actually just kind of entirely changed our brains and the way we perceive time. And it's interesting to think that people before the development of uh, useful and ubiquitous clocks didn't think about time that way. So uh, that's a book recommendation if you're looking for something in the history and science area. But I have a lot of books on that list, which go into how to be a better student and all sorts of things related to that topic. So check that out. Also, if you want to subscribe and review the show, sigpodcast.com is where you'll find the show notes with links on how to do that. Support the show with a review is awesome. If you do that, I will love you forever. Anyway, that's it. 
I will see you in the next episode, and please stay cute. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek Podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.